Hello and welcome to the Sound on Sound podcast. I'm Editor-in-Chief Paul White and with me is Technical Editor Hugh Rob Johns. Hello there. We're going to explode a few myths and answer a few questions, but first of all, we're going to ask Hugh what he's been up to the last week or two. Oh, loads of stuff, actually. Coming up in the next edition, the September edition of the magazine, I've just reviewed the Behringer ADA 8200, which is a replacement for the original ADA 8000. Uh, essentially, it's exactly the same thing. It's it's the same functionality. They've tweaked a few little things. They've improved the electronics throughout. And it's it's technically slightly better. It's still very cheap, and it's still a very handy little unit. I've also done the AMS Neve 1073. It, it's an original Neve module. It's the 45 series module. But instead of just having the strange edge connector, the Amphenol edge connector on the back, it's got XLR input and output and sockets for DI input and that kind of thing. So it makes it a very useful standalone module. But if you ever want to get more of them and put them into a rack, you can do that too. So that's quite a nice design. Um, and I did a little EB Acoustics passive speaker. It's only a little tiny bookshelf thing. And we don't see many passive speakers these days. But this is a very nice sounding, very cost effective little speaker. So that's all in the next edition, the September edition. And then also in the wings waiting to find a magazine to be published in, uh, I've done a little monitor controller from Drama, which is absolutely brilliant. It's got everything on it that you could ever want on a little monitor controller. Very simple, but it's got all the right monitoring tools. Benchmark have updated the DAC1 and it's now called, surprisingly, the DAC2 and that's very clever. One of the nicest things about that is that they've built in before the converter about 3.5 dB of extra headroom. So if you have a very heavily compressed audio track, as most CDs and most downloads are these days, uh, which involves uh, intersample peaking, those are preserved so you don't get the clipping distortion that you generally get with conventional DACs. So that's very clever. I've also reviewed an Aurora Sidecar, which is a very simple 10 into 2 mixer. It's basically a, a kind of Neve-derived design which has mic preamps and EQ modules feeding through into direct output so you can also bust them into a little stereo mixer. Quite expensive but very elegant and it sounds fantastic. Uh, Millennia H37, that's a 500 series preamp based on the Millennia HV3 design. Uh, the Neumann KH310 monitors, they are brilliant. I loved the old um, K&H 0300Ds and 0300A monitors. And people complained that they didn't go loud enough for some applications. I never found that myself, but I can see where they were coming from. Well, now that Neumann have taken over the, the K&H company and they've redesigned that speaker from the ground up, everything's new. It's got new drivers, uh, new amplifiers, but the, the format, the shape and the size and everything are exactly the same. And they've just improved it in every area. It is an absolutely stunning speaker and it's nothing like as expensive as you'd expect it to be. So very impressed with that. And then a couple of projects I'm on at the moment. I'm reviewing a Lindell Audio DAC. The RME Octomic XTC, which is an update of the Octomic, uh, which is an 8-channel mic pre I.O. box with um, pretty much every digital format known to man on it. And also the Gem Audio Sculptor, which is a channel strip, essentially a preamp EQ and limiter. So quite a lot of stuff, really, from me. And then with Paul, went down to London last week and we had a sneak preview of Isotope's new stuff, the Isotope RX3, which is an update of their restoration software with a few new modules and some improved workflow aspects to it and uh, the Nectar 2, which is um, a vocal processing package, essentially. I have lots of good toys in that, too. So that's me, Paul. What about you? What have you been playing with? Well, I've had quite a lot of fun stuff, really. I've had a lot of guitar pedals to play with, which is great fun, uh, including some things from Roger Mayer, which are not quite pedals because they've got no foot switches on them, but they're essentially analogue models, if you like, of existing valve amplifiers, complete with the saturation characteristics and the tone stacks. And he seems to be doing quite well with those. They're not cheap, uh, they're fairly boutique, but they do work. I've looked at some of the newer Boss pedals. I've, uh, of course, been trying to get my head around Logic 10, 
which is um, an interesting challenge to those who know Logic 9 because all the features are still there, but they've moved them all. It's like um, getting into a new model of your favourite car and finding that the brakes are now inside a pull-down menu accessed inside the glove compartment, you know, that kind of thing. But um, it makes sense once you find your way around it. I've also found a couple of bugs which have been reported and hopefully will be fixed soon. I've also been uh, updating my UA software, which now includes some uh, Engel guitar amplifier models and some new, more finely modelled Pultec equalisers. So that's all jolly good fun. But probably the most weird piece of software I've tried recently is F-Expansion's Bloom Delay. I mean, if you know the guys at F-Expansion, you know that when they come out with a delay plugin, it's not going to be just a delay plugin. This is more like a modular synth. It's got the most over-the-top modulation section with sample and hold, envelope trackers, multiple LFOs, noise generators, and a big modulation matrix so that you can combine any amount of any of these things and route them to any of the variable parameters in the delay line. So the result can be anything between glittery wonderfulness and um, sonic mayhem, really. So that's going to appeal to both camps, the nice and the nasty. Other thing I've looked at is the Aphex Project Channel, which is a mic pre with an optical compressor, a big bottom enhancer, and an oral exciter enhancer. So if you want more of everything on the way in, then that's a good box to buy. And finally, the PreSonus Eris monitors. They do a 5-inch and an 8-inch first monitors from PreSonus. So I didn't know what to expect, but they're actually surprisingly good and not particularly expensive. I think the fives are of particular interest to people working in small, awkward-shaped rooms because they work really well in smaller rooms. And, of course, in the evening, I've been proofreading the uh, final version of my Life Sound book with the help of Dave Lockwood, and we're hoping to get that off to the printers in the next few weeks. Apart from that, not been doing much. Well, you've been on holiday. I'm just about to go back on holiday again. Cool. I don't know. Anyway, it's time for a bit of um, Q&A, I think. Sound on sound. first question we have is, should I be recording at 16-bit or 24-bit? Is there a really big difference, considering that the, um, the dynamic range of both are far in excess of what we would get in the days of analogue? Well, that's a fair question here. What do you make of that? It depends what equipment you have and, and what you're doing, really. You can certainly make perfectly good recordings with 16-bit. I mean, it's been done in the past and people still do it today when they need to. The advantage of 24-bit is that you can just afford to leave a few more bits worth of headroom at the top end and not worry about encroaching the noise floor at the bottom. But to be perfectly honest, in, in most acoustic recording environments, the ambient noise floor is so far above the system noise floor that it's really not an issue. Dynamic range of most things is, is never going to worry 93 dB potential dynamic range of 16 bit, even if you leave a good you know 10 or so dBs of headroom at the top end. Most systems are by default working at 24-bit and that's a sensible place to leave it, to be honest. It, it means you've got to store a bit more data, but with hard drives being as big and as cheap as they are, not really an issue. But if you've bought yourself a little hardware recorder that only works at 16-bit, providing it's got dither in there somewhere, you don't have to feel too guilty? No, absolutely not, no. I've got a question here for you, Paul. Um, it's one we hear quite a lot, actually. The idea that you need small monitors to work in a small room, how would you reply to that? Well, it's not that they're physically small, it's that the bass response is less extended than from a large monitor, as we tend to describe them. And in a small room, the bass behaviour is very unpredictable. There isn't enough room for the wavelengths to develop properly and to diffuse, and all the room modes 
tend to be stacked up in uncomfortable places. In a, in a large room, all the room modes are distributed, and so the bass is treated fairly evenly. But the smaller the room, the fewer the modes, and the more likely you, you are to have big peaks and troughs. So rather than annoy these by using a, a big speaker or a system with a sub, it's sometimes better just to ignore the very low bass and leave it flat and use a speaker that goes down to maybe 50 or 60 hertz rather than one that goes down to 35 or 40. I think that's my take on it anyway, Hugh. What do you make of that? Yeah, I'd agree. Um, just having a small speaker that that is accurate through the sort of lower, mid, mid-range, high end and not worry too much about the bottom end, not excite the room too much, actually makes things just that little bit easier. And you can put headphones on if you want to check the actual bass. Exactly, I was going to make that point. Also, if you are going to monitor on the speakers in a cube-shaped room, it's best to wheel your chair away from that centre spot because no matter whether you've got large speakers or small speakers, that bass cancellation is still going to occur and you'll get misleading results. So don't listen from the exact centre of the room. Absolutely. Here's another question. Uh, recording guitars, and that's your, your forte, Paul. Uh, what kind of mic is the best kind of mic to use for recording guitars? I know what I'd say to that, but what are you going to say? Well, are you saying acoustic guitars or electric guitars here? Oh, I think we're talking electric. Well, the thing about the electric guitar is that it doesn't actually have a natural sound. It uh, is not a natural instrument. It's whatever you put in front of it in the way of effects, how the thing reacts with the amplifier. So it's really a matter of achieving what you want to achieve rather than capturing something accurately as it would be with an acoustic instrument. For that reason, uh, engineers have used pretty much every type of microphone on a guitar amplifier. And the, the standard that you read about in so many books is the old Dynamic SM57, but then other people swear by ribbon mics, which have got an even more subdued top end, and yet the American recording engineers will very often go with a capacitor mic, which gives quite a bright sound. I think it's really a matter of trying the different mics you've got. Don't worry too much about their technical specification because noise is going to be of no concern whatsoever when you've got 100 dBs of guitar amplifier six inches from the microphone. Um, SPL handling, something in excess of 130 would be nice just to be safe. But mostly it's a subjective choice. And of course the sound will change as you move the microphone away from the amplifier or across the speaker. So there are so many variables in there that the microphone is just one of them. Some microphones do sound unpleasantly fizzy and harsh, so eliminate those from your inquiries as soon as you can. But just try everything you've got, really, and see what happens. Yeah, I think my, my praise of that would be anything you like. Uh, as you say, you can use dynamics, you can use ribbons, you can use large or small diaphragm capacitor mics. They all have different qualities, they all sound slightly different, and where you put it across the front and, and in distance terms will sound different. And, of course, you can put up all of the above and then mix and match them, blend them together to get a composite sound that gives you a quality that you like. Yeah, that's true. Then use anything with the proviso that it has to sound good. OK, now we're going to explore a few myths to see if there's any truth in them. The first, of course, is the great egg box myth. In the old days, it was common practice to stick egg boxes on the wall to try to improve the acoustics and soundproofing of a studio. How successful was this, Hugh? Uh, not very. I don't know what the idea came from, really. I suppose it was something to do with trying to create some diffusion or, or something, but I mean, any kind of understanding of physics would explain that it really doesn't do very much and it, and it never could do very much and worse than that the eggs fall out of the box when you pin them to the wall anyway hmm. I suppose the idea is that the irregular surface gives some kind of diffusion and a lot of people used to confuse acoustic treatment with soundproofing they'd think they were the same thing that's also true but again egg boxes really wouldn't do very much for that either you could put stuff behind them which would help obviously some acoustic absorbers but then 
the egg boxes themselves aren't going to let very much in the way of, of sound through because they're relatively solid. The other popular myth, of course, is carpet, which is the modern equivalent of the egg box in... I've got a little carpet in my studio, but there's only a few square metres of it near the front of the room, and behind it is some other absorbent material. The mistake that a lot of people seem to make is sticking carpet on all the surfaces, sticking it directly to the wall, and then wondering why the room sounds more boxy than it did before they started, and he will explain exactly why that is. Yeah, the problem is uh, a lot of people will buy cheap carpet which has a rubber backing, so it won't let sound through or at least not, not mid- and high-frequency sound through, uh, for a start. And it's only very thin, so it can only absorb the very highest of frequencies. So what you end up with is a room where all the top end is, is disappeared completely, is all soaked up, but the mid-range and the, and the low frequencies are bouncing around quite freely in the room, and it ends up sounding very boxy and boomy and just not very pleasant. Yes, I think what you have to keep in mind is that acoustic treatment has to be reasonably evenly behaved across the entire audio spectrum, and as soon as you start putting in something that only deals with very high frequencies, you throw everything out of balance. Yeah, that's right. The idea is to get an even reverberation time across all frequencies. It's very hard to get short reverberation times at low frequencies without an awful lot of treatment. Basically, as the frequency goes higher, the easier it is to, to soak it up and the less material you need to do it. So, um, you know, carpet on the walls or carpet on the floor will get rid of high frequencies very, very quickly. So you need to be careful. If you have stuck carpets to the wall, when you can bring some of that uh, high end back again by putting reflective panels up, whether that's you know, panels of CDs or, or picture frames, glass-fronted picture frames or pieces of hardboard or something like that. Now, you can put a bit of bounce back in at the high end. But the better plan is just not to do it in the first place. Thanks for that, Who? And finally, the, uh, the very popular myth that somehow digital recording is missing out something that analogue recording has and therefore digital audio is the imperfect partner. What would you say to that, Hugh? Uh, I'd say it's complete rubbish, really. It's a myth. Digital recording's been around for actually a very long time. People think it's a relatively new thing, but it's not. It's, you know, the physics and the science and the maths of the whole thing were worked out a very, very long time ago. And all of that science and technology and mathematics has been used in a lot of other spheres besides audio. Uh, I mean, it's used to keep aeroplanes in the sky these days uh, in the way that the control surfaces uh, work and the way it measures airflow and all that kind of thing. It's used in, in all sorts of different technologies that we take for granted and they all work absolutely perfectly the way that they should do. And yet in audio, people will assume that something's missing and it can't quite be right. So is this just a case of it doesn't sound like it did, therefore it must be worse? I think it's possibly that. I certainly think some of the very early digital stuff actually wasn't very good. But then you could say the same about analogue stuff. If you go back 100 years and listen to a, a 78 shellac record, it doesn't sound very good. The technology is exactly the same as vinyl LPs today, and people rave about vinyl LPs. It was exactly the same technology, it just wasn't engineered very well. And the same's true of, of digital recording. It, you know, Back in the early 80s, early 90s, it wasn't that good, let's be honest. But today, it's been pretty much perfected. You can measure digital audio stuff, and it far exceeds even the best analogue these days. I think one of the best tests you can do is to actually feed a test waveform into an analogue tape recorder and see what comes out of the other end. It's quite often almost unrecognisable. Whereas if you record it onto a digital system, the waveform's going to come back um, pretty much identical to the way it went in. Yeah, assuming that you stick within the bandwidth restrictions that are inherent in a digital system, that's true. But then again, some of those distortions uh, that are inherent in analogue systems, actually we've grown to quite like, and they are quite musical in many applications. And you don't get some of those musically enhancing distortions in digital that we might have wanted or that we used to like with analogue. You can always add them back in later, of course. 
And of course that's the basis behind the myth really, isn't it? It's not that analogue was more accurate, it's that it did things. It's, it's almost an effect that did something nice to the music and once that effect disappeared, once we got accuracy in its place, then we started to miss it. But it's certainly not a case of analogue being better, it's a case of analogue being different. I think so. I remember back back in my, my BBC career, uh, the standard practice when we were recording was you listen to the echo of the desk and then you flip the monitoring switch and listen to what's coming back off tape. And of course they never sounded the same and you ended up mixing and EQing and, and balancing things to make it sound good on the tape. But it wasn't the same as what came out of the desk. When we go on to digital stuff, when you flip that switch and listen to what's coming back from your computer, it sounds exactly the same as what came out of the desk. And I actually like that. Some people obviously prefer things to be a little bit bent in a musically nice way. Well, that's about all we've got time for this month. So before Hugh disappears off on his holidays, he's going to say goodbye. Goodbye. And it's goodbye from me, Paul White. We'll see you next time. Goodbye.